welcome to episode 15 of the Bullock Podcast. This is Ursula Lindsay, and with me is Marsha Lynx-Qualey. Hello. Hi, Marsha. We are coming to you from Rabat, Morocco, and as usual, discussing books uh, from, about, or having some connection to the Arab world. um, Or the Arab-majority region, as you prefer. Right. Well, we've gone into our how... Um, I'm not going to use the word problematic, uh, except I just did. But, uh, you know, we've gone into the issues with the term Arab world. But um, but then we continue to use it anyway. Because, you know, sometimes uh, there's nothing better for the moment. Um, and it's pretty, it's used pretty, it's pretty widespread, it, the use of it, that term. Yes. But if you're going to, every time I introduce the podcast... <laughs> Put in a asterisk. We're not really sure that we're comfortable with this term, but we haven't been able to think of something better. And you're gonna get annoyed with me. Uh, we, I mean, we need to talk. Okay. <laughs> but um, so today we're gonna talk um, about a city that we both love. I think um, maybe not quite as much as Cairo, where we lived forever, but. Probably Close. not. Probably not. Just simply because I I never lived in Alexandria. Yeah, as I know it less well. Um, so the the city of Alexandria on Egypt's northern coast, um, and the way the the debates about the way it's represented in literature. Um, do you have particular memories about going to Alex or visiting Alex when you lived in Egypt? I, I mean. <laughs> I guess the first time I visited Alex, it was surprising to me because um, some uh, a fifteen year old boy ran up and shouted in my ear, and it, it, I, I I experienced Alexandria at first as as different from Cairo, which I experienced as the more cosmopolitan city than than Alexandria. I experienced as the city that was less welcoming. Um, I had exactly the same experience. I had I, I I had I got terribly harassed on the Corniche of Alex. Right, this was also on the Corniche by like a gang of children of like unstoppable right. thirteen to fifteen boys. year old boys. Yeah, it was like one. It was terrible. And also, I think I had. It was my first visit, and I had gone up with uh, by train from Cairo and sort of expected Alexandria to conform. To a you know a vague lit- idea that I had probably I must have imbued through literature exactly right. that it was sort of this um, Mediterranean uh, cosmopolitan sort of m- more glamorous uh, city, and um, I found it to be much more provincial than Cairo, and yeah, I just that's that's. That's um, striking how similar <laughs> of an experience you had, and I came to love Alex. Like yes, me too. Uh, it was that was just a very different. I was surprised, and also probably from whatever I had read as a teenager, taking the train up and having this. I was expecting also this city of Cavafy's poetry or or, or of Lawrence Durrell, and. To experience it, um, I, I experienced it very differently, and then came to know it very differently as well, and and came to feel that the people of Alexandria were wonderfully friendly, and I came to really enjoy the sea there. 
um, and to, to see all sorts of different sides of Alexandria. Yeah, I mean, I there's there was a, a lot of uh, places in downtown Alexandria that I loved to sort of stop by, mostly having to do with food. So right, I, right. There yes. was like a favorite breakfast place right. that I had, and favorite cafes, and we generally um, went on eating vacations up there. I think yes, the best kind. The Greek club, the Greek nautical club mm. that overlooks the port, was like the best place to have lunch. I mean, that's how I like to experience a city anyway. Mostly is is um, by uh, going to all my favorite spots to eat and drink. Um, and I loved walking downtown. I regret to this day, actually, that I don't, I still feel like I don't know the city as well as I could. Like, I did not spend enough time, um, walking it and, like, really, um, getting to know, uh, the different neighborhoods. Uh, but so you mentioned Durrell. So the, the essay that got us both sort of thinking and talking about Alexandria is an essay um, called How Not to Write on Cosmopolitan Alexandria in a, on a site called uh, Politics Slash Letters by the Egyptian professor uh, May Hawass, who teaches at the American University in Cairo. Yes. And who you've interviewed, you know. Yes, uh, she was part of the Teaching with Arabic Literature and Translation series, and I recently appeared via Skype in one of her classes, so I did know her, and as I told her, I was quite surprised by this different persona of hers in this article, this essay, and I told her, write more like this. Yeah, she's, she's, she's kind of angry in this essay. Yes, but in a, in a wonderfully entertaining and readable way. Yeah. And also, she, you know, she presents sort of a broad scope of ways in which people have talked about Alexandria and the way in which we've talked about the literature about Alexandria that I think gives you a good landscape and a good good ways of thinking about these different categories of uh, literary assessments of about the uh, critical assessments about the literature about Alexandria through primarily the lens of Durrell. Yeah, so she starts with Durrell, who famously wrote the Alexandria Quartet, who was British. Sterelle? Oh boy, I think so, yes. Uh, yeah? Um, I had a moment of doubt, but what else could he have been? Uh, and I'll just read a, a, a chunk of the opening of this essay, which is, like you say, really worth reading throughout and covers a lot of ground. Um, so she says, uh, Academic scholarship on cosmopolitan Alexandria has famously divided into two camps, the nostalgic cosmopolitanists, which I'm not crazy about, uh, and I mean the term cosmopolitanist. Oh, okay. I like little... the nostalgia versus anti-nostalgia, though. Yeah, and the anti-nostalgic cosmopolitanists. I guess here cosmopolitanist just means expert on cosmopolitanism. I think it means somebody who approves. Well, okay. So I thought it meant somebody who is who wants cosmopolitanism. Somebody who is. Um, in pro-cosmopolitanism versus somebody who is insular and uh, nationalist. All right, well, we'll get to that because she sets <laughs> this up. So then she says, for the anti-nostalgic cosmopolitanist, Jarrell's metaphor, the city is a whore, has been found wanting. It isn't right for a white man to describe an oriental whore, the issue not being in the whoring or the mimesis, but in orientalism. I'm going to, I'm sort of reading here, but skipping a little bit along the paragraph. 
Uh, approving of Durrell, this view decides, as being complicit with colonialism. The city is a whore inasmuch as it was in the service of the Europeans. The natives virtu- virtuously didn't seem to have much to do in this scenario except change the bedsheets and disappear. Um, disappear down the rabbit holes of cosmopolitan Alexandrian history. I quite like the turns of phrase in this. I do. I do, too. Um, I'm just... Uh, and she says, you know, had Durrell, with his well-placed satire of Egyptian bureaucrats in Mount Olive, been of Egyptian nationality, the opinion would have probably been different. And then she quotes um, a scholar, uh, Hala Halim, who's a professor at New York University, um, and actually was my thesis advisor of my master's thesis, and is from Alexandria. Um, who says, silenced in and excluded from this prevailing narrative of cosmopolitanism are the Egyptians who constituted the majority of the city's population and its labor force. Um, Which is a really common critique, basically, of Durrell, is that he just... He He glosses over the existence of many, many parts of, of Egyptian society. Yeah, that he's not representative is, right. is one is one way of putting it, and that sort of he just that his characters are all elite and all foreigners, and that the and by extension that this whole uh, glamour that surrounds aura that surrounds a time in Alexandria when it was cosmopolitan is itself elitist and colonialist and sort of complicit in that because um, the cosmopolitan somehow excludes the Egyptians. And I'll just finish with one. Her, then she sort of then she gets to her um, May Hawass gets to her sort of sort of main counterattack um, when she says uh, in Halim's account, Nasser's nationalization in quotation marks because if we call it what it was, that would be judging it too harshly of assets belonging to the British and the French. Parenthetically, only the British and the French are mentioned. There's nothing about the others is even described as the Egyptianization of the economy, because apparently appropriation by a new ruling class is something very different from exploitation in the feudal system, so much for resisting complicit authoritarianism. So she sort of, you know, has a big critique about the way in which uh, the anti-nostalgic camp criticizes the view of cosmopolitan Alexandria, but then has very little to say about the forms of the ways the forms of mismanagement and marginalization and authoritarianism that persisted. Right, and and the ways in which this nationalization also spawned a new sort of xenophobia. And then she talks about other people who are excluded in addition to the British and the French. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but Alexandria had a very significant uh, Italian population, Greek, Armenian, Jewish... Uh, it, it it really it was a city of a huge migration to Alexandria from Europe. I believe also Slovenian, hmm. so also Eastern European population. And then, of course, of mass, there was a mass exodus from Alexandria after the 1952 revolution, and particularly, I think, a bit after that when the nationalizations started. Mm-hmm. Or what perhaps how us would would thinks of, would should be called expropriations or expulsions. Um, you know, she clearly thinks that there's, it's a little euphemistic to right. simply describe it as that. Um, and so, because there was this huge break in the in the city's 
history, all the writing about sort of pre-revolutionary Alexandria does have a lot of nostalgia. Some of it is done by people who were part of these communities that left or who, you know, described those communities. And interestingly, I would just add that it really seems to agglomerate around Alexandria in particular, even though in, say, the 1850s, Cairo was in some ways the center of the world and people came from around the region to live in Cairo and and Egypt was like a place of uh, Cairo was a place of sort of this cosmopolitan scholarship, but it but it's Alexandria that's perceived as uh, as the place of cosmopolitanism. Well, have lost cosmopolitanism. Have lost cosmopolitanism. Yes, I think there's some it's something about the sort of radical contrast because because there is something true to, in the sense that the the change in Alexandria was more dramatic. Yes, the, the, yeah. the, the number of people of uh, who who left of 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 quote unquote foreign communities because they were people who perhaps had lived in Egypt for many generations, mm-hmm. um, and and Cairo ha- Cairo is today a, a fairly cosmopolitan city in fact right um, and Alexander really isn't even though you, you know if you go downtown Alexander there's all these sort of reminders architecturally and in, in certain establishments uh, of that time and so I think. It makes sense that it's sort of symbolic, and you have, I mean, and then you have this, you have a, a, a valid, I think, critique about the urban, the mismanagement of Alexandria's urban development, right? So the way the city has, uh, the, the Alexandria Corniche basically has been, you know, devastated by the construction of all these high-rises that block everyone else's view to the ocean, the sort of loss of access to the beach for most people, the really, like, poor level of, like, infrastructure and, and public services. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, so I think what she's suggesting, that some of what's lost in the anti-nostalgia camp is that that some of the loss is is glossed over, that... Um, that there's not a grappling with of the, th- the things that have changed in a negative sense. Yeah, and that there's a sort of critical gaze. I mean, the, there's so much criticism, such a critical analysis of um, the way the city was like segregated and governed, you know, pre-revolution, but then that doesn't continue on into describing the problems with governance after, which right. may have been as dr- bad, if not worse. And that's because, you know, the that gets into uh, the sort of fraught terrain of whether, of seeming to regret a colonial era. Right. So people obviously don't want, you know, people who don't want to seem like they're nostalgic for colonialism... Right, or, right. you know, not don't want to seem, who aren't. Right. Right. Uh, so they, they are suspicious of a discourse that is very nostalgic about this era before Egypt won independence, and that contrasts it unfavorably with the present day. Yes. And not only, you know, nostalgic for... with Suspicious of nostalgia for colonialism, but suspicious for of a sort of classism of only being interested in, in the elites, whether they were Egyptian or Greek or, um, or British, versus being interested in, in the lives of 
the majority of the people who lived in Alexandria. Right. Although at a certain point, all of the quote unquote foreigners may have, I mean, they were not a minority and they were probably not all elite. They couldn't possibly have no, been. No, no. I, I, as I understand it, some of them uh, from Eastern Europe, for example, came in to be um, maids uh, of, of various uh families in the in in the city i mean it's certainly probably true that there was a sort of ethnic uh caste system and segregation and that you know that the most excluded and the the people who who were sort of most precarious positions were many of them were the local population um i just i don't think you have to you know be anti-cosmopolitan to be anti-colonial. I think. Sure. No. Yeah. That. Um, well, I, I think it's interesting that she doesn't mention beer in the snooker club, and she doesn't mention Wahi Khali. Um So she posits this third camp, which is the angry cosmopolitans, mm-hmm. um, who, <laughs> you know, who are who are of the people and for the people, and yet reading Walter Benjamin, which you know we both think is okay that you can be reading Walter Benjamin and be of the people for the people. I believe we both think this is okay. Um, uh, but I think there's also this cynical cosmopolitanism of uh, Wagi Hreli, who, um, who does recognize the, the change uh, that happened when Nasser took over and the, uh, the opportunity that's lost, the, the people that he can't connect to, uh, the sort of ordinary Egyptians that he can't connect to. Uh, this is more about Port Said and Cairo than than Alexandria, but I think his his critique of a of a lost not lost cosmopolitanism should uh, be thrown in there somewhere as well. I'm thinking about this. I mean, I yeah, I agree. I, I love I love that book immensely, and I think there is yeah, there's definitely an uh, one of its elements is uh, about the sort of alienation of a certain very cosmopolitan elite from the quote-unquote people. Right. The real people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I find, I mean, I'm clear, I'm, I think, although it sounds slightly pretentious to say so, I think, like, I have no choice myself. I am cosmopolitan, probably, as, like, I've spent more of my life outside of the United States than in it. I, childhood spent in Italy and then, you know, an adulthood spent in Egypt and Morocco. And, you know, I speak four languages and I like to spend time with people who have similarly garbled uh, uh, backgrounds and, and, and who sort of, you know, are at home in a variety of places and also at the same time perhaps not entirely at home in any place. That's right. just well, and I think I I would find it problematic if you said, but build the wall around the United States. Uh, don't let people into that into my country. But you know, I am similarly. I think probably cosmopolitan by mm, that's been my life. I also believe in no borders anywhere. So you know, please uh, turn the U.S. cosmopolitan as well. And I think every great city is cosmopolitan. Like I, I don't think there are great cities who that aren't probably. Um, certainly, and particularly every great port city. Mm. I mean, 
I don't know, Tangier, Marseille, right, right, Naples, right. Istanbul, like wherever you go. I mean, like, I think the problem is that the term cosmopolitan has gotten associated, you know, with the colonial era, with elitism. It doesn't have to mean that in the sense that, like, the cosmopolitans of the, of these cities can be people from modest backgrounds. Yes, it no, is- she does have this toss in this line at the end saying this sort of, anti-cosmopolitanism is also blocking out people from uh, Sudan, people from Chad, people from from elsewhere around the world uh, who are, you know, not Egyptian of six generations. And, 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 and personally, I mean, I find the anti-cosmopolitan strain in Egyptian politics is very strong and I find very pernicious. Like, this has been something that's been going on since the revolution in terms of uh, you know, stoking a kind of xenophobia and paranoia right. about outsiders. Blame the Palestinians, blame the Syrians, blame the Israelis. I mean, for, for you know that I think they were the the largest uh, imaginary outsider, and not imaginary. Like they fought several wars, but it, that was a big part of it. And the, the Americans, the French, the British. There's there's reasons also, but this has been so cynically manipulated mm. to kind of double down on a really like close-minded provincialism of a lot of the Egyptian elites, whether they come from the military or they come from the Muslim Brotherhood, they, these, guys, these guys have the same social profile, which is just, like, so deeply suspicious of, like, outsiders and outside influences, and then it gets used to, like, smear people. And you see it globally. Like, like we're in a moment that's anti-cosmopolitan. Right. Like, everybody sort of wants to right. double down on their Raising borders and their national identities. And even at the same time yes. that we're in a moment where people, more people are moving around the world and more people are in need of finding new homes than ever before. So, I mean, I would sort of want to, like, reclaim cosmopolitanism. Like, I think, you know, it's... it's it's a defining characteristic, I think, of right. a lot of the cities that I love and the people that I appreciate. The non-elite cosmopolitanism, the um, <laughs> the well, anti-border I mean, like, cosmopolitanism. And I don't, I don't even want to pretend that I'm uh, not a particularly fortunate or privileged person to have had the life that no, I've had. Su- you know what I mean? I'm not like suggesting I'm not- uh, that one has to be non-elite, but that. That the that this cosmopolitanism is not an, not a cosmopolitanism that is primarily aimed at people in the one percent, but a cosmopolitanism that takes into account the Syrian refugee, the right. person leaving Eritrea, the person who wants in Bolivia who wants a better life in. Costa Rica or whatever. Right, right. That it's about, you know, people from different backgrounds who speak different languages, who learn each other's languages, who sort of like, you know, uh, create a shared urban culture that incorporates the backgrounds of a lot of different people. Um, but anyway, I mean, to get back to Durrell. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, no. I think I'm the one who took us, who took us down that road. I, I So, uh, I mean, I have a sort of a particular axe to grind with Durrell just because, like, every once in a while somebody compares him to Proust and I'm, like, outraged. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I have a very good French friend who, like, uh, has made this mistake more than once and I just, you know, I, you have to draw the line. Um, so the quartet, I've actually read, I think, twice. And um, 
you know, we've talked about how sort of like books fade in your memory, but this one isn't completely gone yet. Uh, and you know, it's it's got that structure where it's four books and they're each, it's sort of the same events, but told from the point of view of four different characters. Which, I do remember that much. Right. So he's like, you know, he's, he's, but that was sort of very, at the time he did it, that was innovative and there's this sort of political intrigue and love affair that you keep seeing from different points of view uh the narrator is obsessed with this um a jewish woman called justine who you know is married i think to an egyptian in alexandria and he keeps discovering new things about her and what she's up to and so on and there is i think some like beautiful if kind of overheated writing about the city but like memorable like Uh. and you know there's a lot of sex and intrigue and art too um I never was crazy about it, but I enjoyed parts of it. I sort of always felt like it was a bit overrated. Also, apparently he didn't like Alexander particularly. He said a bunch of rude things about him. I do remember that. (laughs) But, you know, the idea that there's something... The idea that that a foreigner shouldn't write about a city that they're not from or shouldn't write about other foreigners in that city... I mean, as a and and I don't think that's really the argument. I think the argument is more sophisticated than that. But th- that seems like a superficial to me position. Like, yeah, it doesn't okay. make a lot of sense. She she's suggesting that literature needn't be representative, and I'm not sure that anybody made that. Maybe some people have made the argument that it's not representative of the city. Um, well, that one of the most famous novels that everybody knows about Alexandria is written by like a, a foreigner about other foreigners. Well, that is a that is a flaw in this category of world literature in general, I think. If you see these kind of maps, meme maps that circulate um, on, on Twitter, they sometimes have a map of the world with the most famous book from, from each uh, country. And, you know, some of them you really have to zoom in because in, in a small country, you know, War and Peace, you can just see, boom, all of Russia. Um, but there are a lot of uh, countries in, on this continent that are the, the most famous book from is, is written by a British or French person, which... But that's the most famous book, of, yeah, from, but not necessarily in that country. Like, no, of certainly, course, yes. Within Egyptian literature, the quartet is not the most famous no. book about Alexandria. I don't know what would be, in fact... Um, it's not Edward Al-Kharad. Um, Ibrahim Abdelmigid would would probably be... No? You don't think so? Maybe. I mean, I remember... The most famous Alexandrian writer, Alaa Khalid. I mean, Abdelmigid, because he really wrote very regularly about... And I remember after reading the quartet, I do remember reading Abdelmigid and having the sort of uh, interesting sort of revelation of... A point of view on almost the same time period. I think Nobody Sleeps in Alexandria is sort of set in the Second World War, where that is very much from the point of view of the Egyptian population that has, like, you know, d- different interests and different politics, uh, by and large, than, than, than the foreign characters in Durrell. And it felt interesting and, and cool and good to have also that, um, that vantage point to so it does feel like in the portrait of the city to a certain extent uh those voices are missing in Durrell. I will ad- I I I think that's a yeah you certainly couldn't I would think that calling it a novels of Alexandria is a misnomer 
Yeah, I think the problem is is not so much that he focuses on that milieu, but that there's almost no, that I can remember, there's very little acknowledgement of how partial that focus is. Like, right, the, there's, yeah, there's really... something like reading a novel where only the male characters exist, and you're like, you know, there's got to be women somewhere in these dudes' lives. How did they not make the book? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's... Uh, there's definitely something to that. And then I was, I was trying to think about who are sort of the most famous or writers about Alexandria or ones that, that I know. And, of course, Kavafi comes to mind and um, I think is justly renowned. Um, and who else? In terms of writers who are recognized internationally? Well, who have also sort of contributed to the... It, to the literary image, the literary of Alexandria. image of Alexandria outside of Egypt, or um, inside both. Well, I mean, Mahfouz has a Mahfouz wrote Miramar. Right. I remember that book well. I mean, Miramar is a probably the most well-known Alexandria novel outside of, and that is Durrell. a novel that is already like post post-revolutionary and its concerns are entirely nationalist concerns because basically it's an allegory uh, of, a, of a pension, of a hotel in Alexandria where the male characters all represent different political currents and are all competing for the affections of a female housekeeper, I think, right, yes. in the hotel, of a young sort of servant girl. I mean, which the the... The questions that that sort of gendered representation of the country as a prize for which male political actors fight is a separate issue. Um, but the sort of colonial past and the foreign and that's all gone already. That's not that's not the focus of the story at all. Right. And I think there are more recent uh, novels that grapple with with both, like um, Baha Abdel Magid's. I can't remember the title. St. Teresa, maybe? Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. We'll find it. <laughs> um, grapples both with um, expelled uh, Jewish population and with the uh, Egyptian Muslim and Christian populations. So I think uh, in the current moment, I think there is some grappling with the the expulsions and and how the, the nationalization, if if we want to call it that, of... Alexandria. Yeah, I mean the other book that comes to mind and figure who comes to mind is is Yusuf Sidan who wrote a story about like ancient. It's like, Azazil's uh, won the two thousand nine International Prize for Arabic Fiction. It's his most well known, and it's pre Islamic Alexandria, right? Yes, so it's, it's Alexander the Greek, turning point where uh, it's becoming Christian, yes. right? From mm-hmm. pa- passing from paganism to Christianity, yes. and it's about tolerance and religion and extremism. You say in this exasperated tone. <laughs> I, I'm not a fan. Sorry, I know that people. A lot of the, I think, think the popular critical opinion is this is his good book, uh, and his other books are not as good. Um, I, I'm of the bleh opinion. Sorry. No, I mean I did. I started to read it in Arabic, which is all, almost, which is a, a significant factor also in why I didn't finish it because it's such a, it's such an endeavor for me to to read in Arabic. It was quite a long novel, as I remember. Huge. It. Yeah. it was huge. It was huge. So I, I read like a, a chapter or two. Um, 
and but and also sort of having met him and seen interviews with him Tim to me he represents actually this strain of I think I guess nostalgic cosmopolitanism taken to quite an extreme very elitist actually I think yes he he was the director of the Biblioteca Alexandrina was he I think so. He, or he was a director. He was a director of some part of a of center it. within it. Of I a think. Center within I think it, yes. because I think Ismail Seragadin has been director. Oh yes, sorry. For, Ismail Seragadin is the for a long time. Yes. Yes, he was. He was a director of some part of it. I mean, he belongs, and this is why it, this discourse is actually, and this is a a, a, a a local. I mean, an Egyptian discourse in Alex and an Alexandrian discourse of people who feel like the city was overrun by uh by both okay by provincialism Mm -hmm. by hordes of basically lower class people from the provinces and uh by islamic fundamentalists because actually uh, i don't know what the situation is today but I mean, until recently, Islamist parties were particularly strong in Alexandria. Both the Muslim Brotherhood and Salafist parties did really well there. Right. I mean, but generally speaking, Alexandria did get a really raw deal in terms of all the resources of Egypt being poured into Cairo, Cairo, Cairo. Right. And which is part and of it this. It was left to languish. Yeah, it was. I mean, and I think also there's like part of the the fury in Hawass's piece is. Is is about this the state that the city has been uh, allowed to fall into, and yeah, the the way basically the centralization of authority in 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 modern Egypt has also involved like not letting any competing uh, capitals of any kind right. emerge. So right. everything as though it would be some sort of competing political force. Right, it would. Probably yes. I if, suppose if you had a functioning, that's successful sad. provincial city yeah, run yeah. by a popular mayor or right, something, right? Um, that probably would be an issue. Oh, you know, don't the, give them any ideas. <laughs> you know, the other great novel written about Alexandria is, um, and this is another. Uh, um, he probably, I don't know what, he might fall into the category of a certainly of a cosmopolitan. I don't know if a nostalgic is. Um, Albert Cousy's, yes, yes, um, yes. Uh, cons- uh, what's it called? Oh. It might be the Jokers in English. It's a violence et dérision, so um, uh, you know, violence and uh, derision, or that's violence. a terrible title. <laughs> I know, violence and satire. I don't know. I'm, but anyway, it's about. It's set in Alexandria, and there are. Uh, Different political groups wanting to overturn the mayor. Right. Uh, one it's of a them, wonderful political satire. It's amazing. Of laziness. I mean, like all his books. Yes. And and one group tends towards violence, and the other one chooses mockery as its weapon. And they start. They decide to undermine the mayor by praising him to the skies because that Which will I make him is look a classic bad. Egyptian. Classic, essentially Egyptian strategy of mockery. <laughs> yes, even though he's not Egyptian, but uh, yes, I mean, well, he he eth- he left he's not ethnically Egyptian. He left Egypt. I don't know in the sixties. I'm gonna mm. guess, and then lived in a in a hotel in Paris for the next forty years, writing novels exclusively set in Egypt. Right. I, I mean, he is on some in some way. I think again, if one doesn't believe in such 
narrow definitions, national definitions of identity. Right. Um, there are people who may not be Egyptian citizens who have Egyptian Egyptian sensibilities or whose art contributes or illuminates things about Egypt. And I don't think I don't think anyone, any of the scholars actually who are cited by Hawass herself or the people she's disagreeing with are, you know, so dogmatic or so exclusionary that they, you know, wouldn't want to admit that. I don't think that no, anyone in no. this debate I, well, I is... I think all, all the people in this debate she frames as cosmopolitan. Well, she does, you know, say talk about people who are conservative and nationalist, but I think all the scholars in the debate are in some way cosmopolitanists, whether they're angry, nostalgic, anti-nostalgic. They also happen to be actually personally cosmopolitan because most of the scholars in right. this debate are people who most have of taught abroad know, right? or studied abroad or right. lived there. So the people themselves... Or teach at the American University in Cairo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also like ac- academics as a class tend to be fairly cosmopolitan, right. fairly mobile, no other languages. Like, but I mean, so anyway, I I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed this this article. As it, I, as did I, and I urge everyone to also read the footnotes. Don't 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 miss out on that. Yeah, although they're a little bit well, they have okay, some great maybe links. They're a bit obscure. Yeah, they're a little bit inside <laughs> baseball, some of them. But they do have some great links actually to both to the work of the people that she's arguing with and to some sort of online forums and Facebook groups yes. of young Alexandrian scholars. Like so many of these debates, it sort of comes down to having nuanced positions, right? Like like the- I think what she does really well is she lays out a landscape and she lays out different ways of thinking about this. I don't think we can say that Khalid Fahmi or Hala Halim are, you know, uh, ignoring uh, that bad things have happened to Alexandria. But but I think it's an interesting way of thinking about it. Nostalgic, the the nostal- What what is it gets lost in the anti nostalgiaism Okay, so you have three books to talk about. Yes, and I'll start with Brothers of the Gun, which just came out from Marwan Hashem. And one of the reasons why it interested me to, to talk about on the podcast is because we previously talked about Dunya Mikhail's book, The Beekeeper, and uh, oh, and which in Arabic was called in the in the sex slave market, more or less uh, in translation, and that was about primarily foregrounding the stories of women who had been kidnapped by uh, the Islamic State, by Daesh, and and held captive, rescued uh, by this man uh, who is who's this sort of titular uh, beekeeper, and who she's recording their stories and testimonies, along with giving her own story of, of growing up in Iraq. And this is set primarily in Raqqa, uh, by Marwan Hushem, who says that he was at one point the the only person under under um, Daesh rule who was tweeting in English from Raqqa. So it's nonfiction. It's it a, is it's an, a it's memoir. Non-fiction. It's his memoir, starting from from childhood, from about age eight or nine, uh, through his, uh, and he comes from a conservative um, working class background, and he went to a religious boarding school, which sounds really terrible. <laughs> um, uh, not the religious part so much as, you know, all the ways in which boarding school just, you know, really atrocious food and 
extreme discipline and being not having anything fun to do. Um, sounds, you know, uh, this kind of boarding school sounds terrible. Uh, through that to go going to college and just at that moment when he's sort of trying to find himself as an English literature student in, uh, in Aleppo is when 2011 happens. And so it begins with protests and, you, you know, it, it has these wonderful coming-of-age moments where his, so his, they come, he comes from this, this town, Raqqa, that he really paints as this sort of horrible conservative backwater. And then he goes away to college in Aleppo. His friend Na'el goes away to uh, Damascus. And Na'el becomes a fine arts student, and he becomes sort of much cooler and runs with a much cooler clan and, you know, a clique. And, and so, so there's like, so when Na'el comes back to protest in Raqqa, there's this tension between them. And so there are these like wonderful coming of age moments that don't have anything to do with, you know, the grand narratives and, of Syria. And they go back to their hometown to protest. They do. They do. Um, and, uh, but, but then he shows sort of the evolution from this moment to the fragmentation to different... Uh, so Ne'el originally starts fighting for this sort of ragtag um, anti-regime force of, I think there was like a couple dozen people in his... So he, you know, portrays these all sorts of loosely allied um, groups. Not, you know, the, there's not the opposition and the regime, but all sorts of different... Uh, groups that are trying to gain adherence in different ways, how the, how the trending towards Islamism begins, and then the sort of overwhelming force uh, of, of Daesh entering, taking over Raqqa, which they make into their capital, and just, um, and how he tries to um, keep his, keep his sanity, keep moving, keep keep alive, keep making a living. Does he have the option to leave or does he not want he to leave? He absolutely has the option to leave and he does not. Uh, well, he does eventually. Um, but uh, um, he he comes back several times and he has the chance to leave. He is in this sort of weird privileged position that he acknowledges um, because there's a point at which he did not believe the stories that he was reading and hearing online about these sex slave Yazidi women um, until he, he, so he at one point, so he's like a subsistence farmer for a while because his fam family had a family farm. And then he, his uncle had opened this sort of grand cafe right before um, shit went down and then the uncle flees. And so there's this cafe and he turns it into this internet cafe for Daesh fighters. <laughs> and, um, and so there he is sort of he eventually, imagine him, he's like filing stories for the New York Times. Um, Wait, he's writing his, for the New York Times? Eventually, yes. So he starts out as being sort of the only English language tweeter from Roca, and he ends up being like filing for the New York Times and trying to n not let anyone see his screen because he knows even just the fact that it's in English is, you know, curtains for him. Um, so he, you know, he's in this very weird position and his nephew is fighting with Daesh and he knows these guys and he writes about these guys. So the men in The Beekeeper are all background characters, the Daesh men, you know, we don't, we don't know their stories. We don't, actually, we don't want to know their stories. We <laughs> and, don't care. In Tanya Mikhail's book, you don't care. I mean, that's, that's so not the point. We don't need to know. Yeah. But in this book, we, we know the men's stories. Um... And when he, so the, it's some, sometimes the cafe is like closed off, the, you know, the windows are covered and women 
you know, entirely in black, with their eyes covered in black, come in to use the internet. The, the privileged women of... Uh, These would be the wives, the not wives. the sex slaves. Exactly. exactly. But one time, two women come in and they're not entirely covered and they're wearing sort of normalish clothes. And he's like, what? What's, what's this? What's going on? And it's only... Uh, it, so as he... We are there with him as he realizes that, that he's told that these women are, you know, this old word that nobody uses, um, uh, and that he discovers they're sex slaves, and that these men are, are like, being granted sex slaves, and he just, so he, it's like this moment, he can't believe it. He, he, he didn't believe these stories, and he still can't believe it. And I just wanted to read this passage from the end of the end of this chapter, the bizarreness of every detail of this incident is still a riddle in my head, and its images haunt me. We asked if the woman had another number, but she did not. The whole time, so he, she tries to connect. <laughs> the, these guys supposedly have her call back to her husband and say, don't worry, I've been, I've been kidnapped, I'm safe, I'm a sex slave now. Don't worry about me any longer. Which, you know, it's like a moment you just can't... I also cannot reconcile this moment. The whole time I wondered what the helpless woman had thought of me and the café. Would she excuse me from blame for the rolling catastrophe that had befallen her? Or was I just another monster? Would she even have time to carry me in her memory at all? Did these moments stand apart in the gruel of pain that had constituted her last week and would constitute her foreseeable future? I felt a weight of guilt descend on me for working at the café. I will always feel it. That's fair enough. I mean, I think... Yeah, I, I'm not... I, yeah, I, I'm in no way trying to suggest that this is... Marwan is But it makes for... It makes for... It's a, it's a, it's a, it makes for interesting in story. The details. Yeah. And, and unlike some of the non-fictional non Syrian narratives in, that I've read coming out since 2012 that have been very strongly polemical... This is really about the details of his life and what he experienced, and he really lets us experience it along with him. And it feels grim and real and, you know, everything. His childhood, his relationship with his father, his relationship with these friends and the disappointments of that. So I really uh, enjoyed that. What point does it end on? What's the end point? Is so he's, he comes, he leaves, and then he comes back to do a story for the New York Times. I mean, he's at this point, he's like living off the dream of getting a byline in the New York Times. And, um, and then he, there, he's, he's staying at a friend's apartment, uh, and then uh, Daesh fighters come to take it over, and they're searching the apartment. And there's a point at which he realizes, this is insane. I'm going to get killed any moment now. I'm going to be discovered. And at that point, it ends, and he says... He fled. He fled. Sorry, and say the title again, and when is it coming out? It's called Brothers of the Gun, and I believe it just came out last week. It's, it's billed, it's double-billed as Marwan Hashem and Molly Crabapple, because she did, the, she did illustrations for the book. Oh, I didn't realize there were illustrations. Okay. Yeah, there are, and some of them are really illuminating. Like, you know, you hear about his uncle building this old, you know, beautiful cafe, in the, and, and then you turn the page, and there it is, this... Probably cafe of the imagination, uh, but that's what I wanted anyway. Cool. No, I mean, this is this. I think these kinds of stories need to come out and are coming out. And um, like yeah, you it say, felt... it makes a nice companion piece to the 
to the devastating read that is The Beekeeper. Not that I think this one is less devastating, but it's sort of nice to see different pieces of this puzzle. And basically the point of view of someone who, I mean, didn't, I don't know if you would be, if it's too harsh to say collaborated, but at least sort of acquiesced. I mean, not to say, I don't think people had much of an option, but sort of got along as far as he could while secretly, you know, uh, doing some subversive activities is an interesting point of view to have also. Right. I think he acknowledges that, you know, for women, the moment that uh, Daesh comes in, life is over. Uh, mm. But that he made it. Plus, he's, he's Sunni, he's male, he's, you know, he maintains this weird spot where people are okay with him. Huh. And yes, then he also has this double life. Um, yeah, interesting. So that is really worth reading, and for a number of reasons, it's it's not about it's not about learning about what happened in Syria. It's not about changing. You know, at some point, there's somebody who tells him, you know, you're not going to change anything with this book. And I think there's a moment where he, the narrator is, you know, the, the author is startled by this, but then you know. Yes, he realizes he's not going to change anything by this. He's trying to become immortal through writing great literature, he says. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how literary ambition is alive and well under any circumstances, including theocratic fascism. <laughs> it's always there. Um, okay, do you want to talk next about the book you liked or the book you did not like? I don't know. We could we could talk about the book I did not like, and then we could end on a positive note. All right. I did like. All okay, right. So, so I, the book you hate read in the okay, last two weeks. I hate read. Okay. Nobody. Did you know? Throw tomatoes at me. Did you know going in? Did you suspect that you weren't going to be oh, a yes, fan? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh okay. Um. Although when I was eighteen or nineteen or twenty, to to frame it, to reading the story of Zahra, I loved Hanana Sheikh's writing. Okay. These, these books, I think I read everything, Beirut Blues, I think I read everything that she wrote, and I was totally blown away, charmed, delighted. Um, th this is um, coming out from Bloomsbury next month, or is it already June? Uh, it is uh, already June, I think. Okay, it's already June, never mind, it's coming out this month. And it's basically two novellas smushed together as one novel. One of them old, one right? One of them that she wrote quite some time ago and one of them that she published, I think, in 2013 or 14. Um, uh, the, the recent one was called uh, Virgins of London Stan, and, but in the, and the, the older one was Two Women by the Sea. And they both come under the title The Occasional Virgin. And both of them are these two Lebanese women, one Muslim, one... Uh, one Christian, both living abroad, one in Canada, one in England, uh, having adventures in casual sex, uh, which, you know, maybe uh, if I had read it in the 80s, I would have thought it was, I don't know. So it's a kind of, it's just a sort of uh, well, girlfriend. The first, the first one is just two women cutting loose, sea. girlfriends cutting loose, trying to have sex with some Italian guys on the Riviera. Uh, the second one is uh, apparently um, uh, sparked by an encounter Hanana Sheikh herself had, going up to Speaker's Corner and getting into some sort of frustrating engagement with an Islamist who was there. 
And I don't know if we need to say it, but so Speaker's Corner is just this place in London where people sort of get up on a soapbox and harangue the crowds about whatever. Right. I don't think I've ever seen it, but I've certainly I've read there, but yes, I've about read it many well. times. Right. Yes. And this, in the book at least, it, there's a suggestion that it used to be about grand ideas and now it's just people ranting about religion. I think it's always been kooks, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the kook quote, Quotient has always been there. Right. Well, maybe the Islamists are a new element to it. But in any case, the book sort of reads like a revenge fantasy of Hanana Sheikhs, that she didn't get this Islamist in the moment, so here she's getting her revenge on him in this book. And there are so many, like, personal, like, one of the characters, Huda, is about to stage a, um, a theatrical version of A Thousand and One Nights, much like an Sheikh in real life. Um, and, and I really don't know why this bothers me so much, but it does. Wait, so what bothers you is you're tired of authors... Uh, I'm tired of authors famous authors being, like... Self-referential? Yeah, especially when they're doing, like, cool being, and famous things, I guess. I being meta, kind of, in their work, sort of... in Yeah, like... Didn't you also see that I was doing this other fantastic... It seems like name-dropping about yourself somehow. Yeah, I can see that. In, in, in any case, it annoyed me. I, I don't really know why. But, so she gets her revenge on this Islamist by getting this packet of blood uh, that you can shove up your... Of fake blood. Fake... Yeah, it's some sort of strawberry-colored something or other. It's fake blood, yes. I hope. Yeah, yeah. Um that you can shove up your vaginal canal and uh, that so then during sex it bursts and the man thinks that you're a virgin. That's her revenge. So she sort of like seduces, uh, she puts a lot of effort into seducing this Islamist and has sex with him that seems pretty unenjoyable and then she really had, he's like, ooh, it's your period. And she's like, no, look, I'm a virgin. And this is her revenge. And what does he do? What is his reaction? At first he's like, oh, okay, so then we need to really get married uh, before two witnesses and then divorced. And she's like, haha, no, I will not marry you before two witnesses and then get divorced. And this is her grand revenge. And he does seem, like, bothered by it. And then the other character, but isn't the he, Lebanese isn't woman, also has sex with him. Oh, her friend also? Because this is such a great revenge scheme, they both do it? Um, her friend seems attracted to him. I don't know why. This is but very he bizarre. doesn't need to marry her because she's Christian. But no, but isn't fornication outside marriage? He should be. He should feel bad about that to begin with. He shouldn't just feel bad about sleeping with virgins. That's very clearly haram to sleep with anybody outside of marriage. You're not allowed to have affairs with Christian women. <laughs> well, this woman wasn't a virgin. I don't. But you're not. A, that doesn't matter. Uh, well, I even don't I know, know this. I mean, come on. Also, what know. a strange. I mean, I think we've all had the experience, actually, of like uh, one of uh, it, losing an argument to somebody. I mean, you're never going to win an argument with the kind of person who stands on a street corner yelling out their beliefs. <laughs> right. Never, never. The town where I go in the summer to visit my family in Northern California has a main street. It's a university town. And um, on the weekends especially, there's a lot of people who come into town to sort of share their beliefs with the general public. <laughs> and so, you know, tourist town in the summer and university town, so they, have, they, have, they know they're going to have an audience. Uh, and uh, 
some of them are like kind of like you know very religious or very conservative and they go there specifically to rile up this crowd because it's like a very progressive northern californian town and people always fall for it people always start arguing uh, you know yelling getting right. all worked up i mean i think you just make make their day every time right um, and then if you were going to go Seduce them and have sex with I them. I hadn't thought about the genius revenge <laughs> strategy of, of spending days and weeks trying to sleep with them to really teach them a lesson. Yeah, I really don't see how the guy learned anything. I was going to say, I totally relate to like having weird revenge or fantasies or sort of... You know, the kind of fantasies where, like, mine usually involves, like, being on Fox News and winning a debate around, against, <laughs> you know, against these people, like, like finally sort of, like, persuading someone, having such overwhelming, like, logic and rhetoric that you sort of win a public debate against a sort of, you know, someone whose who's politics you, you loathe in a right, forum right, right. where you feel very powerless and, and where you feel like you can't speak. Right. Well, so you could have, so she could have done all of this and then somehow at the end I don't know then had some grappling with what a stupid idea this was I don't know but in any case uh it's no instead it, sex it ends itself on a bet is, is, it ends on a bet of I bet he's gonna try and sleep with you too ah I won a thousand Canadian dollars he did try and sleep with you too like oh these are supposed to be like massively attractive hot women in their mid-30s and so okay the, this Guy tries to sleep with the other one, so. Uh. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't strike me as a win. I have to say, not an imaginary win. And so, and then you, you just. I mean, so the books. You just didn't like it. You thought it was silly and kind of. I thought there was a bunch corny about it. So at at one point, there's like some better guy. Uh, there's a good guy, a good Muslim guy at Speaker's Corner, uh, and uh, panting, he catches up with them. I want to thank you both. You're the best propaganda for Islam. A young woman like you, turning to Hoda, who's like, you know, hot and dressed like any other woman in London, talking about the burqa is more important than hundreds of speakers trying to convince the West that there are modern Muslim women, blonde ones with green eyes and dark, sexy ones. I've got an idea. Why don't the three of us begin a dialogue with the title Free Hugs with Muslims? We allow everybody who wants to find out about Islam, men or women, to embrace us, and they might get a better understanding of how spontaneous and open we can be. We're ready, exclaims Yvonne. They introduce themselves, and he carries on. Pleased to meet you, Huda and Yvonne. Yvonne and Huda. Like, oh, was that satire, and I didn't, I missed something? Yeah, yeah. Free hugs. What? Yeah, I don't know. I don't even have much to say. Like, <laughs> I just read that and I was like, wow. And this is also a guy who just told a racist joke and he's then the good guy. I don't know. I was so lost. And yeah, and so the whole point of the book is this sort of just, you know, there are good liberal Muslims and, you know. Right, who we can get behind because they wear bikinis and have sex as a revenge strategy with Islamists. Well, apparently Islamists have sex too, which is no revelation. Like, I don't think it's sort of, I mean, at least I, I, the idea sort of seems to be that somehow, you know, tricking them into sex reveals something deeply hidden or contradictory about them. But the fact that, like... 
I think they, we all knew that they were having <laughs> sex slaves and well, I mean, let's not say that all Islamists okay. are having. No, 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 no. no. Let's okay. let's you know. Let's not. <laughs> no, no. Okay, sorry. They're having they're having sex scandals left and right. Islamist preachers and so on, and politicians, and they have sex lives for sure. Yes, I don't think that that is revolutionary. Yeah analysis. Well, all right. So, Hanan Sheikh, sorry, disappointing. I remember the story of Zahra. I'm I'm confused that the same writer has written this book. But I I've even read a recent short story of hers about a mother having an adult son uh, dying of a drug overdose or maybe he doesn't die. But in any case, no, he doesn't die. But I thought that short story was really wonderful. So, I was confused about this book. Hmm. Uh, maybe I, her publisher talked her into it. Uh, I don't think so. I think uh, she wrote this Virgins of London stand from her own desire, and then maybe her publisher talked her into mashing these two books together. But we, it could be a miss for English. We didn't need that one. Mm. All right, and now the good book, or the book that you like, that we're going to end on. Yes! Uh, this is a short story collection by a South Sudanese writer called Stella Gitano. And it, it, I think the Arabic... Short story collection came out in 2004, 2005, and you can get that on Nilwa Furat. And the English translation of this short story collection was published this year, and I still don't, Stella doesn't seem to know, and the translator, uh, Tony Coldermank, also doesn't seem to know. So I need to, maybe, I uh, need to figure out from the publisher if there's any way, if you're not in South Sudan, to get this book. But the, you are holding it in your hand, so it was am, mailed to you? T- Tony mailed me, uh, Tony mailed me a copy of the translation, yes. So I have both the Arabic and the English, and I may be the only person other than Tony and the author. I don't know. You're certainly <laughs> the only person in Morocco, probably, who has has this book. Because um, uh, it was published in Juba, South Sudan. Um, and it is... The publication value... I mean, the, the book itself is not a beautiful object... Although it holds together pretty well. The font is weird. It's just that it has a strange large font that makes it seem like a child's book. It, a book for children. It, it does have a strange weird font that makes it look... It's almost like they were afraid that if they didn't make it in a big font, it wasn't going to be thick enough? Yeah. Because it is, it is a slim collection of short stories, but they're really wonderful short stories. Um, to me, they remind me a lot of Yusuf Idris's short stories. And, Whoa, that is high praise. And um, Hamid Zafsef. His uh, short stories of sort of the underclass of, of Moroccans. And the, this is, by and large, interested in, in a Sudanese underclass of, of South Sudan. Uh, it's, it's written in Arabic, um, but it, you know, it's interested in the many peoples of South Sudan. And it's just, uh, it's got a lot of really beautiful, vibrant observations and I, it often uses second person and I I know that this is a risky strategy sometimes to use second person but because these are such short texts um, I think the the use of second person works um, in helping you really uh, become very close to these these characters who are deeply struggling to keep body and soul together um, through extremely difficult circumstances. And uh, 
I just wanted to read a short passage from the first short story that has this image that I really enjoyed. Her excessive smile, so it, this, this woman, it, she's, which happens in a lot of somehow um, Sudanese short stories that I read, maybe it's like a common profession of women illicitly selling alcohol and then huh. um, getting swept up by, by the police and raids on, uh, on women who are selling backstreet alcohol. Somehow this is like frequently a trope in, in short stories that come out of Sudan. Maybe there's a lot of uh, black market hooch. I guess so. Because it's a dry country, officially. Uh, I think so. Huh. I, I can't imagine that South Sudan is now, but th these stories were written before there was a Sudan in South Sudan. All right. Well, listen, how about you take us out on this, on right. this quote? So we're going we're gonna, to we'll end after you finish reading it. Okay. All right. Her excessive smiling, despite her inner turmoil, also confuses you because the drinkers will think that her morals are loose and they don't like women with loose morals. She walks over to you, her skinny body rattling about in her dress like a spoon in a glass. You can see her veins as they branch out about her body from the source to the mouth and back again. She lifts up the pillow under your head and places some money underneath it. Your head almost explodes with pain. She does this every few minutes, working out the bill and depositing the money under the pillow, seemingly unaware that there is a head there, as if you and the pillow are one and the same, although perhaps there's a slight difference because you cough and pillows don't cough. That's good. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to have to borrow that. It's yours. All right. Well, listen, great talking to you. And to you. And uh, see you soon. Yes. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.